This is Guns and Butter. There is no government. There's no government because there's there's no information sovereignty and there's no financial sovereignty. And what you're watching is an infrastructure of private banks and defense contractors who run the whole thing. So now we've created a financial mechanism and an IT mechanism where you have a group of private banks and private defense contractors running the entire government, including all the data and databases for the government, on a non-transparent basis. And there you have, on an operational basis, your shadow government. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Catherine Austin Fitz. Today's show, The Black Budget. Catherine Austin Fitz was a managing director of Wall Street firm Dillon Reed and Company, assistant secretary of housing and federal housing commissioner in the first Bush administration, president of the Hamilton Securities Group, and is currently managing member of Solari Investment Advisory Services and C-Lane Advisory. She is the producer and host of the weekly briefing, The Solari Report. Today we discuss the financial coup d'etat, where the money has gone, what is being financed, black budget funding of private corporate projects, the history and organization of the financial system since World War II, the Exchange Stabilization Fund managed by the New York Fed, digital currencies, and the shadow government. Catherine Austin Fitz, welcome. Bonnie Faulkner, it's always a pleasure. Well, here we are in beautiful Nicasio, California. Oh, it's fantastic, and we just had lunch. We yes. just had a, a Solari, a luncheon. Solari Report, it's Luncheon with Catherine. Oh, it was beautiful. We were in the field with tents. A fabulous, all-natural fresh food. That's the wonderful thing about having lots of subscribers who are fresh food people. (laughs) Oh, it's just, it's absolutely beautiful here. Uh You have spoken and written at length about what you term a financial coup d'etat, specifically that from 1995 to 2008, or 2009, vast sums of money have disappeared from pension funds, retirement funds, uh, communities, and sovereign governments into what you call new financial entities. You have calculated conservatively that $40 trillion has disappeared. How did you come up with this figure? Um, it was an obviously, this is what I call a back of the envelope estimate, and the goal of that estimate was to frame conceptually what might be happening. Um, it started, Bonnie, when I realized what was happening with the housing bubble. You know, we as a nation, and this was done at the highest levels of government, was engineering a fraudulent housing bubble with very significant amount of mortgage fraud of the kind we'd seen in the 80s, but at significantly greater levels. Part of it was after the last housing bubble in the 80s, we uh, basically created, we shifted Freddie and Fannie both into GSE status, and then we added derivatives. So, you know, this guy was the limit as to as to sort of the additional levels of fraud we could do. So I started to look into the extent of the mortgage fraud and how much money was being pulled out of that market. And then I started to find that money was disappearing from federal accounts. So between 1997 and 2002, we had over $4 trillion dollars in what's called undocumentable adjustments in federal accounts. And if you looked at the money 
that that I thought was being laundered out of government. It was literally in the trillions of dollars. And so between the mortgage market and the and the so-called missing money, we had trillions there. And then we went into a period from 99 um, into 2006 where we literally saw a pump and dump of the stock market. Everybody remembers the Internet bubble. And my guess was that they took another 5 to $10 trillion out, shifted out through those mechanisms. To give you an example of the extent of this, in the, in the spring of 1997, I met with a group of very high-level pension fund leaders, and we, my company at the time, was working on uh, trying to understand how we could re-engineer the federal government to really enhance and improve the economy, particularly to make sure that the pension funds met their targets. You know, how are we going to build the retirement savings that we needed when the baby boomers retired? And that was a big issue because we were outsourcing millions of jobs to Asia. So how are we going to essentially both in terms of income and in retirement protect the middle class? So I was giving a presentation to this group of investors, April 1997, on how we could re-engineer the government money. And the head of the largest pension fund in the country, California, CalPERS, said to me, you don't understand, it's too late. They've given up on the country. They're moving all the money out starting in the fall. And that's when the $4 trillion started to go missing from the federal government. But coming into that period two years later, then you, you went through what I described as the pump and dump of the Internet stocks and the telecom stocks. Another group of money came out. The housing bubble continued, and this process continued, and then we came into the bailouts. And depending on what numbers you believe, $27 trillion in bailouts, um, and then, of course, the money that the Fed has been using to buy back bonds. And, of course, part of my question is, is the bonds that they're buying back, you know, essentially fraudulent? So are they basically running a shredding party? If you count it all up from the money pulled out during the mortgage fraud, the missing money from the federal government, then the, the pump and dump of the stock market, and then the um, and then the bailouts, not to mention what can be siphoned off sort of quietly through the pension funds, retirement funds, other things. I added all up, and back of the envelope, my guess is it was $40 trillion or more from the mid-'90s to, to, you know, after the bailouts. Now, what was that? I think that was a coup d'etat by financial means. In other words, you're talking about shifting enough money out of government to literally finance an endowment to run a global government on a private basis just from the dividends and interest on your endowment. So I, I literally, that's why I call it a financial coup d'etat, because I think we had a change of control by financial means. Yes, because, well, $40 trillion is an awful lot of money. Right, and one of the things I want to stress is you're watching assets leave these different entities and shift into you know, who knows, private activities, whether it's investment in, in what I call the black budget or investment in, you know, building an endowment. You know, there are many things you can speculate. We really don't know. So so part of it is you're shifting that money in. At the same time, you're shifting liabilities back into government. So you're taking the assets out of government or out of these different entities and moving it, but then you're shifting liabilities back. So if you look at during that period, so for example, after 9-11, we saw the insurance industry shift an entire world of liabilities back into the federal government or the federal government assume it. 
So you're, you're getting your formal governments to take on more and more liabilities as they're losing their assets. And so we see a, an enormous shift in the power of corporations and private investors versus sovereign governments, because the governments have lost the assets, but they, their liabilities, if anything, have increased. Well, how is it that after 9-11, the assets of the government were, were siphoned off? What are you referring to specifically? Well, you had legislation passed to provide insurance and protect insurers in a whole realm of terrorist activities. So you have the government assuming more responsibility or waiving responsibility, corporate responsibility, on all sorts of risk issues. That was just one of millions of examples. One of the things that happened, if you look at the sort of what I call the financial coup d'etat process in this country, one of the most critical pieces that made that possible was federal insurance, both on deposits and federal insurance on mortgages. So between FHA, VA, the farmer's home loan system, um, and then, of course, we saw the federal government step in. And for Freddie and Fannie, by providing federal insurance and guarantees to the credit system, you create a credit system where all those kinds of shenanigans can go on. So let me give you an example. Let's say we're in a community 50 years ago, before 1933, before the FHA was created. If I'm a local banker, there, let's say there are 1,000 homes in my community, and I'm writing mortgages on all 1,000 homes. If drugs or fraud starts to come into the community, I'm going to do everything I can to stop it. You know why? Because I'll lose money. Okay? But let's say after FHA is created, if I'm originating mortgages and they're all government guaranteed, right, then that means if fraud comes into the neighborhood, if people stop acting productively, if all those mortgages default, I still get paid, right? That's right. Right. So I no longer care about the health and well-being of the place to the extent that I used to. I may care as a human being. I may care. But, but my financial success is now divorced from the financial health and success of the people in that place. And if you look at the waves of fraud that hit during Iran-Contra or hit during this last wave starting in the mid-'90s, very much they depended on federal deposit insurance and on, uh, on federal guarantees of all different kinds. You say that the missing money has left our traditional legal systems. Where do you think the missing money has gone? Well, that's the, you know, that's the $64,000 question. Wouldn't I love to know? Because you know, I keep saying, where is the money? Let's get it back. And to a certain extent, you don't need to know where it is to get it back in the sense that you can identify which corporations and which entities are responsible and hold them accountable. So in theory, you don't need to know. But I think if you look at the amount of money that's disappearing, it is such an extraordinary amount um, that you have to wonder what's going on. You know, this weekend uh, or next weekend, you and I will both be at the Secret Space Program Conference. And, of course, one of my questions is, you're talking, you know, I'm, I'm always uh, stunned when I hear people attribute what's going on to corruption or, or incompetence. Because, Bonnie, we're talking about a level of finance which is far too large to be explained by incompetence or corruption. In other words... The housing bubble was not the result of a group of people getting together and saying, let's make a whole lot of money and do something corrupt. Because you're talking about way too much money 
you know, just to finance Goldman Sachs partners or, you know, people with offshore accounts and furries. You're talking about the, you know, the kind of money it takes to field spaceships, you know, or to build. I'll never forget somebody telling me about it, seeing a UFO and they were a former Navy pilot. And I said, how much does it cost to, you know, to build one of those really fast planes? And he says, well, about $65 million. I said, okay, how much would it cost to build the thing you saw? And he said, mm, about $100 million. Okay, so we're talking about the kind of money that would finance a fleet of flying saucers. Okay, we're talking about big money. So, so the question is, how much went down the block budget? How much got stolen to finance, you know, a new world government on a private basis? How much got shifted into investment in the emerging markets, you know, out of the developed world and into the emerging markets? Um, how much of it just went for bonuses? I mean, we, we know that all the people who engineered the housing bubble and a whole wave of enormous financial fraud, none of them have been sent to prison, right? <laughs> no, because, they haven't. No, that's because they were doing what they were directed to do. And if anything, they got bonuses, so a little bit went to bonuses. The reality is we don't know where it went. But the reason I keep talking about these various uses is we're talking about a scale of money which is sufficient to literally finance a new civilization. Okay, so we sucked an enormous amount out of the developed world. Think of it this way, group of guys sitting in a smoke-filled room, you know, and they look, whether Europe or the United States, they look at all the G7 populations and they say you know if we're not careful all of our capital is going to pay for nursing homes you know in 10 or 20 years well tell you what let's pull it all out shift it leave the nursing home liabilities in the in the current entities and then the money when everybody gets ready to go into the nursing home the money won't be there okay so the question is where did it go and what i'm saying is it went someplace it's clearly still in the economy if you drive around the, the, the United States or you drive around Europe, you know, that money, some of that money is being reinvested. So we see tremendous reinvestment going on. Where did the money come from? So think of, think of the economy as a Pillsbury Doughboy. If you shift $40 trillion out over here, it pops up someplace. It goes someplace. It didn't just disappear. So that's my question, where to go. I'm speaking with entrepreneur and publisher of the Solari Report, Catherine Austin Fitz. Today's show, The Black Budget. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. You have said that the missing money is coming back to North America and being reinvested. What makes you say this, and where is the reinvestment taking place? That is, what projects do they want to finance? Um... If you, if you listen to my annual wrap-up on the Solari Report, we go through the different sectors of the economy as strong. You see enormous centralization and aggregation of farmland and agriculture and the real you know, continued industrialization of agriculture and automation of agriculture. So that's clearly one. Um, the second is there's tremendous investment going into the transportation infrastructure, whether roads or, or um, uh, railroads. Um, in, in the wrap-up, I call it digital heartland because now what we're seeing, Bonnie, is the extension of new technology into the sort of infrastructure and heartland of the country. 
So 10 years ago, if you were an investor and you talked about technology, you were talking about what was going on in Boston or Silicon Valley. Now you're talking about integrating that technology into hardware. Okay, so we see you know different efforts to make a driverless car. So it's a much more hard you know integration into the fundamental hardware of the infrastructure. So transportation, a lot is happening. For example, with digital signs on highways now, as you drive around the country, you have much more sort of digital communication on the road. So that's an example. Um, we're watching a uh, return of a lot of different manufacturing to this country because you have a revolution going on in material sciences, a revolution going on in fabrication technology, and a revolution going on in robotics. And so big investments in manufacturing, not that create employment, because we're talking about very highly automated stuff, or, you know, it creates uh, some employment in engineering, but um, but in, in much more just-in-time manufacturing here in this country. And I think part of it, too, is I believe one of the, the, one of the areas you're going to see more big investment is in space. And if you look at those functions, they don't lend themselves to outsourcing. You want everything here. You want a much tighter quality control. Um, another area which has been explosive is in energy. So we have seen um, a tremendous development of domestic resources since 2005, in some respects, the, the technology is very controversial, but it's brought the natural gas price down, way down. And if you look at the relative cost of energy, energy is the single biggest component of manufacturing, cost component. If you look at the price of energy here versus Europe versus Asia, we are very competitive. And so that is part of what's attracting the manufacturing back. As a result, you're watching enormous investment domestically in the whole oil and gas and energy area. If you drive through Texas, I don't know if you've driven through Texas lately, it's unbelievable. <laughs> you know, you know I'll, I'll be driving through Texas and people will say, the economy is collapsing, and I'll say, no, actually it's in a boom. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, it's extraordinary. It's just extraordinary. Um, you know, I was, I was at a conference in L.A. two years ago, and... Uh, very fancy downtown hotel. My room cost $90. I was in Midland, Texas two weeks later. My room, you know, it was I was staying in the shabbiest motel in Midland, Texas. My room was $140. So <laughs> Texas is booming. So those are a couple of the areas. Another key area to watch is, um, is the whole digital systems. So we now have, um, in September 2011, when we hit the peak in the price of gold, you had, I think, 800 million people on smartphones. Now you have over 2 billion headed to 3 billion in remarkable amount of time. Um, we are literally approaching a period where, you know, once upon a time the American consumer drove the global economy, and then the European Union consumer, you know, the European Union was bigger than North America, now we have a new consumer market. Just as we organized production for globalization in the 90s, now we have something where we're literally reorganizing the consumer market and how the consumer interacts because we're shortly going to have 3 billion consumers in one market. It's called People Online. Now, one of my theories is, and this is going to be a very important issue to this financial coup d'etat that we're describing, um, will be 
someone is going to have the ability with digital currency to create currencies that unify that entire market. So 3 billion people on smartphones can interact using digital payment and digital currency systems as if they were part of one country. And it's going to be very interesting to see what happens. Well, there may be 3 billion people on smartphones, but 3 billion people aren't going to have jobs, are they? Well, that's that's the big question here. In other words, you're you're shifting towards an economy where literally um, everything can be done with very little human labor. So we're either going to go back to an economy where people do for themselves or an economy where through a subsidy process people are going to be you know, subsidized through government payments. And that's the big question. How, how do you transform in this kind of economy? With regard to the uh, financial coup d'etat, the, the $40 trillion missing in money, that looks like it's starting to reappear in North America. Oh, I think it's reappearing all over the world. Oh, you do? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I clearly think some of this was the shift of funds out of the developed worlds and reinvestment into the emerging markets. So when, when we created the WTO at the beginning of 1995, there was a compelling economic reason to, to arbitrage labor. So you pull capital out of the developed worlds, you reinvest you know, in doing the same thing in the emerging markets. You know, so clearly there was a shift of capital, both overtly and covertly. It was interesting when the head of CalPERS said to me, you don't understand, it's too late, they're moving all the money out in the fall, they're moving it to Asia. You know, so his contention was they're reinvesting and rebuilding Asia. So I think clearly some of it was reinvestment in the emerging markets. Now, if you go back to the history of disappearing money, because money's been disappearing out of the federal government for a lot longer than just the 90s. But if you go back through the history, there's clearly a black budget. And there's clearly enormous funding for secret um, government and military projects. And I think the reality is is that black budget activity um, has been, you know, increasingly privatized and is not under, you know, these are not just secret government projects. These are corporate projects. And they're being financed through the governmental mechanism but they're literally owned and controlled privately. Well, yes, since you brought up the historical angle, could you talk about how and why the current financial system was organized post-World War II in the United States? Um, and in that context, what is the Exchange Stabilization Fund? <laughs> it's the mother of all slush funds. Okay, so let's go back to the creation of the Federal Reserve System One of the important things to understand within the Federal Reserve System is you have the member banks, which are owned privately by the members. So you have 12 member banks, but the mother of all, you know, the the mothership of the member banks is the New York Fed. And the New York Fed, which is owned by the member banks, so it's private, it's a private bank, is the depository for the U.S. government, which means that its member banks run and control the bank accounts for the U.S. government. The U.S. government does not control its own bank accounts. It uses those bank accounts through the New York Feds. They control, okay? So so the New York Fed also reporting directly to the Secretary of the Treasury, not through the bureaucracy, 
is the manager of the Exchange Stabilization Fund, which is a fund which has broad authority to intervene in the markets. Okay, so for example, we saw recently the announcement that central banks just finished buying $27 trillion of equities. That's broad intervention in the market. Now it's kind of, you know, being done openly, but, but from 1934 on, the Exchange Stabilization Fund was able to do that, and it was able to do that without accountability. So one of my favorite Exchange Stabilization Fund stories was in Christopher Simpson's wonderful book, Blowback. I don't know if you've ever read it. But he describes the seizures of the Nazi money, or some of the Nazi money, being pulled back, put in the Exchange Stabilization Fund, and Dulles, who was at the time at, uh, at, at Sullivan and Cromwell on Wall Street, directing the rigging of the Italian elections at the request of the Vatican, all with the money in the Exchange Stabilization Fund. And sometimes I say, you know, I think the history of, of our society from World War II on was really a history of replenishing. <laughs> you know, you see this constant effort by the guys who run out of the slush funds to replenish money into the slush funds. And if you look at the rolling frauds over the last 50 years, you realize, oh, they ran out of money and they get, they had to come up with a new way to go get the, you know, you just can't go to Congress and get appropriations. You have to come up with these various ways. Anyway, so the Exchange Stabilization Fund has a long history of, of, of not only managing covert funds, but being able to leverage it with interaction in the financial markets. Okay. Now, remember, it's managed by the New York Fed, but that means as agent, it's managed by J.P. Morgan Chase, Goldman Sachs. Okay, and this gives them the ability to act as agent. For many, many years, the groups who were arguing about the suppression of the gold price were saying, you know, J.P. Morgan Chase has this many derivatives related to the gold market and it's all going to collapse. I said, no, it's not, because they're acting as agent. That position is in the Exchange Stabilization Fund. It's backed by the U.S. government you know, the U.S. credit. Anyway, so that's the Exchange Stabilization Fund. And remember, something like that gives you the ability to combine covert cash flows with covert intervention in the market in ways that can lever money in very powerful ways. Okay, and combine that with derivatives. And now you're talking about, um, you're talking about taking money and leveraging it many, many times. Okay? So, for example, I always use the story of mortgage fraud. If I, uh, let's say I buy a house, and I, uh, let's say I buy a house for $100,000, and I rehab it, I throw in $20,000 of slapdash rehab, and I get a phony bony appraisal that says instead of the house being worth $120, it's worth $240, okay? I then sell it to a straw buyer who defaults right away, okay? And so the FHA pays off the lender, it's government guarantees, okay? So now I've got now I've got 120,000 minus bribes of pure profit. Okay, so that's very profitable. I keep doing it. Let's say I could make a million dollars a year. Well, how can I improve on that game? Well, in fact, if every time I issue a mortgage, I issue 10 mortgages and wrap it in a Ginnie Mae security and sell that, I can get the leverage. But that means I get involved in securities fraud. I get involved in securities fraud, and I need the ability to act in the financial markets and, and trade and do things that are very secretive. And if I can do it underneath the cover of national security and through the New York Fed, avoiding the 
transparency that might happen if the bureaucracy is involved. It's the perfect, you know, it's the perfect way to lever it. And you were just referring to taking out 10 mortgages on the same house. That's right. what you meant by leveraging up. Right. So, you, for example, you know, we used to see when I was when I was Assistant Secretary of Housing, we would see different fact patterns. One was, you know, several mortgages on one home. The other is a home literally being bought and defaulting five times in a year, which is a remarkable speed. Right. You know. Right. So anyway, so that's the exchange stabilization fund. But let's keep going because I want you to hold that thought of private bankers having the ability to act in the marketplaces freely behind national security law using the federal credit with complete non-transparency. Hold that thought. I'm speaking with entrepreneur and publisher of the Solari Report, Catherine Austin Fitz. Today's show, The Black Budget. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Okay, let's keep going. In 1947, we passed the National Security Act, and then in 1949, the CIA Act. And those two acts, in combination gave the government the ability to appropriate money for a series of agencies and then claw it out and use it secretly for the black budget. That was sort of the formal black budget. So we created a mechanism where a very limited number of people in Congress ever saw that money. It was sort of a special a special mechanism. And that's where we get these stories of why is drugs being run in a plane that's owned by the Department of Agriculture? You know, what's that all about? And that's part of the clawing of this money from other appropriations. Okay, now here's the, here's the trick. In, uh, when, when Reagan was elected president, the deal between him and Bush was that Bush would be given control of the intelligence enforcement agencies. And so we see George H.W. Bush, former head of the CIA, taking assuming responsibility for the National Security Council. The president has an attempted assassination three months in, and so that really puts Bush and his group in the catbird seat running the National Security Council. Well, what's one of the first things they did? They got an executive order that basically said all of this private black budget money could be used to pay private corporations to do highly classified work. Okay, so what that did was that created an infrastructure of defense contractors who were able to basically assume control and run operations for all government agencies, including the military, including the intelligence agencies of the highest and most secret kind, okay, behind, again, no transparency. So now we've created a financial mechanism and an IT mechanism where you have a group of private banks and private defense contractors running the entire government, including all the data and databases for the government, on a non-transparent basis. You know, and there you go. There you have, on an operational basis, your shadow government. And within that infrastructure, what you're doing is you're managing and controlling some of the most powerful technology on the planet and being able to transfer it to, you know, Lord knows where, okay? And so uh, I'll never forget when I first got to HUD, both as an assistant secretary and then later as a contractor, you had a very large defense, the largest defense contractor in the country getting paid $150 million plus a year to run the information and payment systems in HUD. They had all the data. 
they would not give me the data. I could not get the most basic data about some of our housing programs from them, period. So the whole country is really being privatized. It's not being privatized. It's been privatized. In other words, it's funny. I was talking about this on a radio show once, and one of the most senior, capable uh, sort of leaders, civ- uh, civil service, that I'd ever worked with at HUD, who was then retired, called me and he said, it can't possibly be this bad. And I said, I defy you to find anybody at HUD who can explain to you how the current budget works. And he said, okay, I'll bet you a dollar. A year later, he was driving through and he said, come have dinner with me. So I went down to Red Lobster and he walked in and he said, it's frightening. He said, there is no one there in the civil service who understands or has any handle on the money. It's all being run through the private contractors. So when you look at the government, Bonnie, most people see 21 government agencies and then the intelligence agencies. So they see a whole series of intelligence agencies. I don't. I see five contractors who run and share all the database, and I see one giant database, okay? And it's all privately controlled, as far as I'm concerned. So when people talk about NASA collecting all the information, yes, they're collecting it, but they're aggregating it with those databases, which are 10, 20, 30 years old and have been run, you know, God knows what that all gets aggregated and looks like now. But it's quite extraordinary. So the government is... There is, is no government. There's no government because there's, there's no information sovereignty and there's no financial sovereignty. And what you're watching is an infrastructure of private banks and defense contractors who run the whole thing. Now let's bring it down to 2006. 2006, George H.W. Bush's son is president. What happens? We, we know we had the Dodd-Frank reforms coming and sort of people insisting on higher quality SEC uh, transparency and disclosure because of all the problems with the Internet and telecom stocks and Enron and questions about fraud in the equity market. What happens in 2006, the president announces that he is, he is authorizing the National Security Council to give waivers to private corporations so that they don't have to comply with SEC rules. So the National Security Council can waive any of these contractors who are getting black budget contracts or getting secret contracts or doing secret projects can get a waiver from the National Security Council, which permits them to lie in their SEC disclosure. So, for example, if you look at, you know, we were coming in to sequester and all sorts of you know, headlines, we're going to cut the defense budgets, we're going to cut contracts. If you look at the stocks of the defense contractors, they're going up, 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 no problem. Now, my question is, did we take that $40 trillion, put it in an endowment, and it's spinning off new contracts to them every day? We don't know. All I'm telling you is that we've reached a point, if you look at that privatized infrastructure, and the, and the financial fraud that has occurred during it. So let, let me put one more piece in place. I was part of a group of people in the first Bush administration got laws passed requiring audited financial statements. A process, the reason we know about the undocumented adjustments, is a process began in 1995 where they started to announce the fact that they weren't complying. 
Okay, and it went on for years and years and years. We know, for example, I just watched Barbara Henniger's marvelous presentation on the what happened in the Pentagon on 9-11. We know tremendous amounts of financial records. If you go back and you look at these different, you know, Oklahoma City, very important financial records destroyed. Uh, the World Trade Center, very important financial records destroyed. The Pentagon, very important financial records. Every time I go looking for the missing money, I find explosions <laughs> and fires. That's, right. That's right. <laughs> right. Building 7 as well. Right. So, so, so you know, that's, that's part of this process. But we've reached a point where, it's funny, I was doing something on the radio the other day, and uh, a group of commentators... Um, started publishing complete breakdown on financial controls in the U.S. government. No, it's not a breakdown of financial controls. There has literally been a financial coup, and the system by which the money is run is so different than the formal laws or regulation that, you know, it's literally, you know, the train has left the station. That system is no longer relevant or valid. And that's one of the challenges I have in looking at a lot of the government financial documents is, you know, if you show me the the financial report of the U.S. Treasury, it's meaningless. It doesn't mean anything. You'll regularly get these reports there if you go to do a search for missing money in Solari. We have a missing money page at my blog. And you'll literally get these reports where the foreigner, you know, all the foreign countries will announce that they own, you know, X dollars of IOUs from the U.S. government and, of course, the U.S. government books show a completely different number, and it's trillions of dollars of difference. And that's because so much of the fraudulent paper has been issued off books. So you ready for another story? In, in I think it was 1994, 1995, I had a person working for me who'd been, on a, who'd been a Senate staffer, and she came to me and she said, there's a mortgage banker from New York who keeps bugging the senator. You know, he wants a meeting with you. So finally I agreed I would meet with him. This guy was very persistent. And he comes into my office, and he's got this huge pile of papers, and he he says, I'm a mortgage banker. My family's been in the mortgage banking business for three generations in New York. He said, I brought you a copy of our database. And he said, our core competency is we track all FHA mortgages, and and we have a complete database of all FHA mortgages that have ever been issued. And I said, well, yes, what can I do for you? At this time, my firm is the financial advisor to FHA. And he says, "Uh, it's quite remarkable. He said, uh... He said, you know, they just published these financial statements, and, uh, and he said there's a terrible mistake. He said, he said the amount of outstanding FHA mortgages is many multiples of what's shown on this balance sheet. He said there's been a terrible mistake. Now, Bonnie, I thought the guy was nuts because what he was saying was the Department of Justice, the Department of Treasury, the New York Fed, the New York Fed member banks were engaged in massive securities fraud. Massive. Remember, if you look at the way the Federal Housing Administration works and, and who's involved, it's very much a matrix structure involving all those agencies. So you, you can't engage in massive securities fraud with, without all of them agreeing and intentionally doing it. So I thought the guy was nuts. And I said, no, 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 no. I probably saved my life not having a copy of the database. And, you know, but it took me many, many years later when I realized, oh, he was probably telling the truth. And I think the extent of the mortgage fraud was, you know, I think this has been going on for decades, ever since World War II. So it's grown and grown and grown. 
It's very interesting. I'll never forget watching. Uh, there's an engineer who used to work at Ames and Lockheed, Norm Berglund. Have you ever watched any of his interviews? So he's describing when the Voyager went out and what they discovered. And, you know, by, you know, what they discovered was clearly very frightening to them. And suddenly he's describing it exactly when the Iran-Contra fraud exploded. And I said, wow, I wonder... I wonder if that's what what did it. Now, here's here's the challenge. When you look at this infrastructure of private, you know, private companies and and so you've got not-for-profits too. So my theory on the black budget was that Battelle was always the knowledge managers. So Battelle's a not-for-profit. Um, so you had this group of organizations, both you know, private corporations and for-profits, managing this flow of money and technology. Um, and then the New York Fed member banks managing the financial side of, of all of that, So there's and the intelligence agencies. And I think what you're talking about is an enormous and very powerful infrastructure that every year wants more money and needs more money. And literally the history of our country from World War II on is the history of what they do next to get more money. And, and um, it's literally... Uh, it's literally, you know, as of the turn of the century, it was literally, it had, it had reached a terrible state of dysfunction because there was so much fraud and so much illegal activities going on to finance this, whatever this is. And I think, you know, one of my big questions on 9-11 was, was 9-11 a way they could move a lot of the black budget on budget because it had literally become too... Too much money was being lost in the, you know, in the complexity of having an economy running very, very different than your official story. And I think it had just reached unbearable levels in the federal government. And I think part of what happened in 9-11 was an effort to kind of massively clean up, especially with the financial coup, the biggest wave of fraud being over at that point. I'm speaking with entrepreneur and publisher of the Solari Report, Catherine Austin Fitz. Today's show, The Black Budget. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Could you talk about how money is used more as a means of control and management and as a way to allocate resources rather than an abstract representation of real economic wealth in and of itself? Does that make sense? Right. Well, what we're watching is we've seen a disconnect between markets and the financial system. So the financial system is moving more and more away from the market system into a planned economy. But we're talking about a planned economy where the ability of the planners to access real-time data at the most micro level. So in other words, you know, they can access real-time data, all transactions, all bank accounts, you know. So when we talk about planning, it's a very different kind of, you know, this is planning by artificial intelligence and very dynamic systems. So, so you're talking about the ability to engineer and incentivize in very powerful and minute ways and to combine it in things like we've talked about entrainment technology on the media. So um, what we're seeing is much more of an incentive system that's really designed to engineer society in certain ways. You know, so you pull capital from this thing and you add capital to that thing. 
um, you make sure these guys get financed and those, you know, it's become very political who gets financed and who doesn't and why. Um, and so we're seeing, you know, how can I describe it? A financial system where, um, where fundamental economics matter increasingly less and politics matter increasingly more. And I think the hard thing for many financial people to understand is how could that possibly you know, how can you possibly do that? And that's why I think the Snowden revelations have been so important because we're beginning to fathom the power of digital systems to aggregate information and, and to be used in powerful ways to sort of manage the economy. With countries around the world making trading deals in their own currencies rather than the dollar, most glaringly now uh, in the Russian Federation, are we watching the beginning of the end of the dollar as the world's reserve currency? And how would the end of the dollar hegemony affect what you term the financial coup d'etat? Okay, so so the most important question, which I don't know the answer to, is what does the breakaway civilization want? Does it want to use the dollar or does it want to use something else? And my guess is what the breakaway care about is they care about they they want to have a currency, but they want to have a digital one, okay? Which is why I think the rollout of the smartphones and satellite systems to support smartphones is probably the most important thing going on, okay? And we should talk about 1989 and the, the German example. So, um, but let me step back. The dollar has been losing market share steadily. So we saw the beginning and the end on the dollar a while back, Um now, if you look at how the dollar system works, this is a process that could take a long time because what you need to run a digital currency is you need to basically have dominance of both uh, the sea and the skies. Okay, So the satellite system, if you look at the infrastructure that the financial system operates on, the hardware is basically cables under the ocean and satellites in the sky. So who has global satellite systems and who has a navy that controls the sea lanes globally? Okay. So when I hear people say, oh, the Chinese currency is going to replace the United States, it's ridiculous. The Chinese have a regional satellite system. They don't have a global satellite system. They just launched their first aircraft carrier. Are you kidding me? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> so this is a military system. The, the central banks print money and the military sails around the world and make sure people take it in exchange for cheap natural resources. What you're watching is the system is a taxation system through the balance sheet, and what you're watching globally is people becoming more and more frustrated with the invasiveness of the system and the drain of the system. Okay, And so, for example, China, if you look at China, I just did an interview on the Solaria Report with Steve Roach. He's got a fabulous new book called Unbalanced, and it's about how the Chinese-American relationship needs to get rebalanced. So China has been... A production society, fantastic amounts, very low consumption, fantastic production. The United States has consumed way beyond its mean, and production is very low. And so the question is, how can we both rebalance our economy to be much more balanced both ways? And that is something that's good. China is rebalancing. The question is, is the American economy going to rebalance? I would suggest I think there's more going on here, and there's more investment to increase our production um, than Roach does, but you know, big question. So, so that rebalancing has to happen 
there's tremendous frustration globally about wanting to get out of the dollar system. We're seeing a lot more trading, you know, um, brick nation to brick nation, which is very healthy because you need a much more redundant currency system. Um, so that's happening. We have lots of discussion going on at the IMF level about what the SDRs can do to reconcile wholesale. The reality is the United States is running a very globally repressive system and is charging everybody for the military. So the big question is going to be, okay, are people going to tolerate that? If if they don't tolerate, how are they going to get out of it? And the reality is we see Putin just try and implement a national payment system because without his own clearing and payment systems, you can't get out. <laughs> okay. Right. So, so that's why the Snowden revelations were so important globally because it put everyone on notice. Okay. If you're going to get out of the system, then you have to have clearing and payment systems separate. And right now, as far as I can tell, there are not enough payment clearing systems for anybody to get out of the dollar system. Now, the longer this goes on, the angrier people get. They're going to start building payment systems. They're going to start trying to come up with encryption systems, you know, whether it's in Brazil or China or here in Marin County. We're all trying to figure out how do we get out of the system. Um, but the reality is, right now, I see the dollar on a very slow trajectory. Now, let me bring this up. To me... Let's go back to 1989. Germany was two separate countries. The wall comes down. You know, the editorial pages are saying it's going to take 20 years for us to have the conversation to figure out how we unify the countries. Kohl was the premier of West Germany. He announces that he's going to swap for the East German currency at a very attractive premium. You wake up the next day, it's one country. He basically tendered for the citizens through the currency. Okay. What do you mean? Suddenly everybody woke up and all their money and bank accounts, they, they basically swapped their East German currency for West German currency, the Deutschmark, and the country was unified overnight. I see. Through the currency. Yeah. Okay, now, if you have 3 billion people on smartphones and, and you can talk them and persuade them all into getting into Google, Apple, and Amazon's wallet, you know, I don't care if you call it dollars or wampum bead. You've got them on your hardware. You've got them on your software. You've got their money in your system. Okay? Yes, exactly. It sounds like uh, the corporations and the banks, the Western banks or Wall Street, the city of London or, or whatever, and you mentioned five major corporations, it sounds like they've got a lock on it. No, because I, th- I think the Snowden revelations... In the long term. Well, the Snowden revelation scrambled the plan. Okay. How much, I don't know. So you've got Putin, you know, announcing that Visa and MasterCard, you know, the joke was Putin can't buy Coke in Moscow without the CIA knowing within, you know, five seconds because they're getting the... Anyway, but, but so we now see Putin basically telling Visa and MasterCard they've got to post $4 billion dollars in, you know, essentially bail money. So if they try and sanction him, he can get them next time. But, you know, so so will the BRIC nations start to build their own payment clearing other kind of systems? I don't know. That's what it's going to take. I think, I think that if you look at the leadership of the G7, 
this process of globalization and rebalancing is one they triggered, and it's one they invested in. So it's one they want to see happen. Um, I think, you know, what they want, as it happens, is a digital currency that gives them the ability to do globally what they're doing now in the United States, and it's what's kept the slow burn going and what makes the economy seem so manipulated, if you will. But will they be able to do it? I don't know. But it gets us back to the question of who and what is really in control and where are they behaving the way they're behaving. And the answer to all the, you know, all these discussions come back to that same question, you and I know, because we did that wonderful series together, Unpacking Mr. Global. Exactly. You know, so the question is, who and what is in charge? And why are they behaving this way? What's going on? And these questions were questions I never wanted to look at. But the reality is, if you look at every county in America, and from everything I can tell globally, it's the same, you know, you have a giant sucking sound of money being pulled out and disappearing. And if you follow the trail all the way back, it leads to money disappearing down the black budget or into this secret infrastructure. And the question is, where's the money going? And why do these guys get to have all of these invisible taxes, whether it's narcotics trafficking, mortgage fraud, debasement of the currency, financial crises with $27 trillion. I mean, $27 trillion of bailout money, that's in addition to whatever the Fed has been buying. $27 trillion is enough to pay all the mortgages in the country off several times over. Yeah, that's just enormous. <laughs> well, it's more money than all the, you know, up until the time that it happened, all the money that, all the debt we'd issued to pay for all the wars, all the highways, you know, on and on, all the national parks. Now, if you listen to some of the commentators, some of them will argue, well, it was paid back and, you know, but... We're, we're in sort of la-la land in terms of trying to get accurate financial figures. I mean, the federal government has refused for over 20 years to produce audited financial statements as required by law. Now, Bonnie, if you had a company and you refused to produce audited financial statements, your bank would stop lending to you. The exchange would stop your stock from trading. No one would invest in you. You'd be frozen, okay? You know, Paul O'Neill, God bless him, when he was Secretary of Treasury, uh, commissioned a study on how much debt is there really outstanding. They put it up on the internet, and literally in 24 hours, he was fired and out of there. You've mentioned the breakaway civilization. Mm-hmm. So maybe we should uh, say a few words about the upcoming uh, Secret Space Program and uh, Breakaway Civilization 2014 conference. It's coming up this next weekend. Saturday, Sunday, June 28th, 29th, in San Mateo, actually at the San Mateo Event Center. Uh, of course, people can get all the information at secretspaceprogram.org. Uh-huh. You can come in person for one day, two days. You can actually uh, live web stream it. There's tickets for that. Now, you're going to be speaking at the conference on Sunday. Sunday morning, yeah. And your topic is going to be what, the black budget? going to be talking about all the things we've been talking about, the black budget. And, you know, I, I know remarkably little about the Secret Space Program other than there are wonderful speakers at this conference who I regularly have on the Salir Report, and I, I've read their work, and, you know, sort of I look to them to inform me on these topics. You know, my part of this is you're watching all sorts of unusual, 
illegal, non-transparent behavior going on in the financial system that tells me, okay, something's going on. You know, all this money is disappearing somewhere, and the people who are taking this money have enormous technology and other power, you know, to implement what they're, you know, the financial aspects of this. So I'll be talking about what's happening in the financial system that informs what's going on, secret space program, black budget, whatever, and and what the, you know, sort of what the goings-on in the money tells us. So, for example, one of the things we're talking about today was, you know, oftentimes when I hear presentations from people, they talk about the group, you know, the breakaway civilization is like it's just a few people. You know, a few people in Washington, a few people in Wall Street, a few private investors. In fact, if we look at the implementation of what we're talking about since 1947 on, Bonnie, it's a very deep system acting in every county in America. Catherine Austin Fitz, thank you very much. Bonnie Faulkner, you're the best. I've been speaking with Catherine Austin Fitz. Today's show has been The Black Budget. Catherine Austin Fitz is the president of Solari, Inc., publisher of the Solari Report and managing member of Solari Investment Advisory Services and C-Lane Advisory. She served as managing director and member of the board of directors of the Wall Street Investment Bank, Dylan Reed & Company, as assistant secretary of housing and federal housing commissioner at the United States Department of Housing and Urban Development in the first Bush administration, and was the president of Hamilton Securities Group. Visit her website at www.solari.com. That's S-O-L-A-R-I dot C-O-M. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner and Yara Mako. To leave comments or order copies of shows, email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter.org. That's F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R at G-U-N-S-A-N-D-B-U-T-T-E-R dot O-R-G. Visit our website at gunsandbutter.org. These are some serious times that we live in, G. And our new world order is about to begin. You know what I'm saying? Now the question is, are you ready for the real revolution, which is the evolution of the mind? If you seek, then you shall find that we all come from the divine. You dig what I'm saying? Now if you take heed to the words of wisdom that are written on the walls of life, You dig me? You got me?